Good to see you guys. Glad you're here today joining us. Um, as we're turning in our Bibles to Revelation 22, if you haven't done that yet, I invite you to do that. But as we're turning there, I'm curious, um, if somebody asked you to describe a perfect world, what would you describe? If somebody asked you to describe a perfect world, what would you describe? And do you think a perfect world is even possible? Do you think it's even possible? Uh, many people have actually tried to create a perfect world, uh, famously in different points of time here on earth even. Uh, I think in a very famous way, uh, Sir Thomas More coined the phrase utopia in the year 1516 as he kind of birthed this sort of idea through this word into the world. And it's, it's basically the idea of utopia is this ambition of trying to achieve heaven on earth in some way. Uh, there's a guy in 2005, his name was Dylan Evans, and he actually tried to create a utopian society uh, in the northern highlands of Scotland. And he basically sent out uh, this online invitation to anybody who was interested to come and move there uh, with him, and they would start this sort of utopian place, this utopian community. And he wrote about this in the book called The Utopian Experiment. Experiment. And things did not go according to plan. If you read the book, you learn that right away because in the first pages of the book, it, it, it begins with him waking up at 3 a.m. In, in a psychiatric hospital. This is after the experiment, okay? So uh, it doesn't sound utopian to any of us. But he retells the difficulty of that place in trying to create this community of heaven on earth, essentially, because he talks about trying to keep the rain out of their, like, yurts that they had made, which on a day like this, we're like, yeah, that'd be hard, right? I'm sure the Oregon rain is similar to Scottish rain, although I've never been there. He talks about having a lot of arguments over religion that people have had. He talks about chopping wood and people having to run to the hospital because they're bleeding too badly. And basically, it's just this massive failed experiment. And he concludes at the end by saying, to call something utopian is not entirely positive. The connotation of a perfect society is offset by that of a, quote, hopelessly impractical idea. He even at some point says that it, utopian societies are basically just dreamt up by really depressed people. That's what he talks about. Again, what I'm going to ask you is, what is a perfect world, and do you think that world is even possible, or is it a hopelessly impractical idea, do you think? I'm, I'm betting if you were to describe a perfect world this morning, you might describe a place where there is no sickness, right? That's always on our minds this year. You'd probably describe a world where there's no more hurt, where there's no more hate, there's no abuse, there's no dishonesty, probably a word, world where there's no disability, no oppression, no fear, no justice or injustice, no lack or need at all in anybody's life. There'd be no loneliness, maybe no violence, no anxiety, no depression, no grief, no death, no sin. That sounds utopian to me, maybe to you. Is that just a hopelessly impractical idea. Right? You see, the interesting thing is that the Bible doesn't just talk about a perfect world. It promises a perfect world. And when it describes a perfect world, it doesn't merely talk about the absence of things, things that I just listed. It doesn't just talk about the absence of things. It actually talks about the presence of things. 
And namely, what it talks about as being present in a perfect world is God being there. And the dominant image that we have in a perfect world that is promised to us is the image of God's throne. We've actually been singing about that this morning. And we as Christians, we are meant to long for this world today and to know that we can be citizens of that world today, and now we begin to live differently in light of that. Right, so here's what we see in our very short but very loaded passage this morning. So I promise this is not a shorter sermon because there's only five verses. This is an extremely loaded passage. And what I want us to consider are these three questions. Number one, what are the features of God's perfect world? What are the features of God's perfect world? We see that answered in verses one and two. Secondly, why is it going to be this way? Why will it be this way? Verse three answers that. And then lastly, what should we hope to be doing there? What should we hope to be doing there? That's verses four through five. So first, let's look at this. What are the features of God's perfect world? And we see this in verses one through two. It says in verse one, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So think about what's being described here. What is our future? And even more pointedly, what is God's future? What is God's future, right? When God gets the world exactly the way that he intends it to be, what is it? Well, it's a city. I apologize to all of you who hate cities, you know, and, and I get it. You, you want to have your land and, and kind of isolate and do that kind of thing. Uh, so good news, even though this is an urban place, apparently, there are a lot of um, natural images that you're going to find here in this city. So there's a big park, maybe. I don't know. But uh, we find all these nature-like features. What do you see here? You see a river. You see a tree and we see a throne, right? So look at this river. We have this ritter, river that's called the water of life, the river of the water of life. We, we've seen this already in the previous chapter, verse 6, where God declared to John that to the thirsty he will give from the spring of the water of life without payment, right? This is the same river that's being promised in that verse, but this image dates way back way further than Revelation chapter 21. We see a river actually promised and flowing out of many places. If you look at the beginning of your Bible, which this is really hearkening back to that, you see in Genesis chapter 2, a river that flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And then we see other rivers. We see Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 47, which is a really important chapter to look at when you're trying to understand what's going on here, if you're wanting to read about that later. But Ezekiel 47, Ezekiel sees water flowing out of the temple. And then we see in Zechariah, the prophet, he promises that living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, so out of the city of God. And then all these references find their fulfillment here in verse 1, where the river of the water of life is flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So we've seen a river flowing from a garden. We've seen a river flowing from a city. We've seen a river flowing from a temple. But this river is different. It's flowing from where? What's the source? It's the throne, isn't it? I mean, I love rivers. Put me near a, a peaceful river, and I'm pretty happy about it, okay? 
I don't even have to catch a fish that day, right? I'll be really happy about it. I don't know much about rivers, okay? Uh, but I do know one thing about rivers, and that is the source of the river really matters. The source of the river really matters. Because the character and the lasting quality of the river is all based upon its source. Can it continually be fed? What's the quality of the water? Is it going to be toxic? And the river's source here is the throne. So the purity that brings life to this perfect world is what? It's the rule and reign of God himself. So we have to ask, is God's throne toxic? Right? The water here is described as what, though? Clear as crystal, which is telling you about the purity of the source of this water. The river flows down the middle of the street, is what you're told. That's telling you something else. It's showing you that when God is at the heart of a place's significance, life is imparted. That's why it's in the middle. It's central. This is critical to see with our eye because where this river flows, it gives life to everything else because what's the second image that pops up based upon where this river's flowing? Well, it's a tree. It's a singular tree, but it's on both sides of the river. Does that blow your mind? Kind of blows mine, okay? It's a pretty crazy place, pretty awesome, okay? But this tree, and what is it called? The tree of life. That's a really memorable name, isn't it? Because we've seen this before in our Bibles, at the very beginning of your Bible. It's like you could pick up your Bible and fold it, and you see that the last page is, is connected to that first page, isn't it? Right? We see the tree of life. And you read about this in the book of Genesis, that when Adam and Eve sinned, the sin of humanity that was birthed into this world, they were barred from Eden because of their rebellion against God. But what they were barred from is not just the beauty of the garden, they were barred from the tree of life. God says in Genesis that they were barred from that tree, quote, lest they eat from it and live forever. Which if you're not thinking clearly about that, sounds like God's being really mean. Oh, God doesn't want them to live forever. But no, God is actually being very gracious because if he hadn't barred them from the tree, that means sin would perpetuate itself for all eternity. But no, it's going to be dealt with. It's going to have an end. They will not live forever unless someone comes and does something about that. But here, the citizens of this garden city, what do we have? We have access to it again. And so this is representative of this new world being what kind of place? And it's eternal place. It's going to go on. It'll never have an end. More than that, this tree is very unique in other ways because what's it doing? It's bearing 12 different kinds of fruit every season. Right? If you could manufacture this tree, I'm sure you could sell lots of them, right? In our world, okay? This is a very unique tree. It never withers. It's an evergreen tree. It never stops producing. It's beautiful. Why is it telling you this? This is showing you that in this new perfect world. This is a place of abundance. It's a place that satisfies. I've never farmed before. I've seen people farm on movies. And so I know enough to know that uh, farming, you only experience harvest like once a year. So there's only a season of satisfaction every single year when you reap the reward from what was produced. So if this tree is producing 12 kinds of fruit every single month, it never stops producing, this is telling you that this place, this new world, is a world of satisfaction and abundance and blessing. And look at its leaves. What are they doing? They're healing the nations. Guys, what is the point of all these features? Well, the point is that what we are moving towards is this mind-blowing civilization where God is present 
He's ruling perfectly, and that rule brings a type of healing life that will never end and will always satisfy. I mean, this is a phrase, this healing of the nations, that's going to call us to remember the very first sermon we looked at when Advent started. We looked in Revelation 21, and we were told what? That God is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In this coming city, there is the reality of healing. So this is what this is telling you, that if you believe in Jesus this morning, do you realize that what you're moving towards is that place of healing? Right? So, so I mean, think about this, that basically the fear that you walked in here with this morning, right, one day will never control you anymore. Right, the cloud of depression that you've been battling all fall in this holiday season will no longer hang over your head. Right, the sickness that's lingering in your life, the, the feelings of loneliness, whatever grief that you walked in here with this morning, the pain that brought you to a point in your life where you feel hopeless and you wonder if you will ever experience happiness again, that will all be healed. Well, what changed? What happened to actually make it this way? Well, you see, anytime you walk through something that's undesirable in your life and your reality becomes healed, if it becomes different or if it becomes better, you can point to what changed in your life. You could say, well, well, I got this new medicine and so it started working. Or um, I got news that my loved one was cured and so that's why my life is better. Or someone put money into my bank account, right? Or even maybe this Friday, uh, you're a kid or or maybe if you're an adult, I don't know, you're going to unwrap something under the tree and you're going to go, my life changed because this. You know, you point to something, you go, my life changed when, when I received this. So change happens when something is given and something is received. Right? We get that. So this is a promised perfect world. Why will it be this way? What is given and what is received that makes it this way? Verse 3, what does it say? No longer will there be anything accursed. No more. Right? We saw that in Genesis 3, right? That God cursed the earth when sin entered into it. And when that curse entered the world, what came with it? More sin, right? More sorrow, more struggle, more conflict, more survivalism, more guilt, more shame but no longer will there be anything accursed. Let me ask you very plainly, do you understand this about the world? Right, that the world is cursed. Do you understand that? And if you aren't a Christian, I'm not sure how you hear that. Because maybe you hear that and you go, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Or maybe you're like, I don't know if that really connects with my worldview. I think if you live long enough in this world, you will inevitably find that this world is cursed, no matter what word you give to it. But as Christians, we know that the Bible tells us that the world is cursed, that God has cursed the world, right, because of this. But to a Christian of any length of time, you hear that question, do you understand this about the world, and your head immediately nods. You're just like, yeah, I understand that. But you guys, I think we know this but we don't often know this. Do you know what I mean? Because since the world is cursed, we then would conclude 
that this world cannot satisfy me. It cannot. Which is exactly why C.S. Lewis famously said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Right? And this is pointing to that reality. So this, this practically means this, that a change of scenery for you or the shuffling of the deck with your job or your friends or your house, right? You name it. Whatever the shuffling of the deck is, is not the solution to your problem, right? You don't just need a fresh start because the problems will come along with you. They're still there. We need another world, right? A world that is no longer cursed. Well, here it is, right? Your hopes and your deepest desires, no more curse. What changed? Well, there's so much imagery that we are drawn to in these verses, right? We love the rivers, we love the trees, we love the light, we love healing leaves, right? But those are all secondary images. The main image is the one that's mentioned twice. What is it that makes this world perfect? What is it? What's the primary image in these five verses? Well, it's the throne, isn't it? That's what's at the center of this whole place. Well, who sits on thrones? Rulers do. What happens from a throne? Well, people have authority, and they wield that authority. See, when the world is put right, authority isn't done away with. Do you see that? Right? Authority is, is still very present for all eternity. And we don't like authority, do we? Right? We've learned many things during this challenging year, but one of the things maybe we've felt more than usual is that we don't like people telling us what to do, right? right? We want to make our own choices. We want to make our own decisions. Right? We have, we've swam in a pool of our own existentialism, our own self-discovery, self-promotion, self-freedom for well over 300 years in our civilization, but we could argue easily from the beginning of time. It's easy for us to notice it in other people but it creeps into our lives as well, if you're being honest. Right? Because of this, we often shrink back from the thought of God having full authority over our lives. Now, we know the right answer. We know we would never say that unless we felt that situation was safe. We know the right answers, but our hearts want to run away from authority, even the authority of God. This is what happened in the garden when Adam and Eve ran from God's good authority, they thought they knew best, they thought God was holding out on them, and we still do the same. And so it's challenging for us to come to this passage of seeing what the world is like when it's perfect, and we find at the center of this perfect world the rightful ruling of God. See, our problem here is that we've just experienced horrible authority from other people. That's why we have such an issue with this. But actually, if we understand that authority is good and it's for our rightful, true freedom, then our view of authority begins to change. But we have this in a lot of different images in life. I want you to imagine just for a moment that you're a balloon, okay? Maybe for some of you, that's the weirdest thought you've had in a month. But I want you to imagine you're a balloon, you're filled with helium, life is pretty great, right? You probably have a string attached to you, some little kid is holding on to you, 
and that kind of thing. But imagine just for a moment, you begin to think, I'm tired of this. I'm always being restrained. This little person who has no idea what's going on in life has this authority over my life. I want to be free, right? I, I want to be free. Let's, let's just say that that child sets you free. Are you going to experience true freedom, right? If you're a balloon, transport yourself there. Are you going to experience true freedom? Not at all, right? That's going to be your ultimate end, isn't it? right? That's what's going to be experienced. We get the same idea with a kite. We see it with guardrails. This is what we understand with the law itself. It's there for our ultimate freedom. We need that restraint, no matter what kind of thoughts enter our mind, right? We understand that authority ultimately wielded for our good is ultimately then for our good, right? Why will there be nothing accursed? Why is authority good and all of life flowing from this throne at the center of heaven. Why could there no longer be anything accursed? Well, we're told in the book of Galatians very clearly that Jesus has come, and His name is Emmanuel, God with us, and He didn't just give you a hug, did He? No, He redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. It says, for it is written, Paul says, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. See, the curse is reversed and the redeemed are enjoying this new heaven and new earth because Jesus has taken the curse in our place. Jesus has incarnated himself. He's lived perfectly. He's died the death of the cursed so that you would receive blessing forever. So you could experience the good and rightful reign and rule of God over your life. Do you see what needed to happen? Man, my kids often love wrestling with me. They want to wrestle often. And I remember one time even wrestling with Eden and Gus, and they often cry out for help. They're not, they don't really need help. I'm not, you know, wrestling them that hard or something. But they cry out for help, okay? And one time they said, Isla, Isla, help us. And Isla ran over to help, and she knelt down, and she gave them a hug. She gave them a hug. It was sweet, wasn't it, right? And because I wasn't really trying to wrestle them, like, everything was fine right? right. They needed a rescuer in that moment, not a comforter. And I think the same is true with us in our sin. When we see what's really wrong with our lives and the world and why there's a curse altogether, we needed someone to die in our place. And that's what we find. Because what does it say? No longer is there anything accursed, but. Look at your passage. What does it say? But. What's there instead of a curse? The throne of God, and who else? And the Lamb. You see, there is nothing unique about God being on a throne. You read the book of Isaiah, you see God clearly on a throne, and that makes sense to us. We think of those places, but what is new here? There's a Lamb on this throne. The curse is reversed, and the world is perfect because there is a Lamb on the throne, the one who John says, behold, the Lamb of God, referring to Jesus, who's come to take away the sins of the world. Guys, do you see this? Behold, the promised perfect world, you guys. And this is why it will be this way. What should we hope to be doing there? What should we hope to be doing there? We see actually four things that God's people are going to be doing there. Look in verses 3 through 5. Let's look at that final uh, phrase there in verse 3. His servants will worship him. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. 
They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. What should we hope to be doing there? Number one, you see right there, God's people will serve Jesus. God's people will serve Jesus. Think about this for a second, okay? This city's walls are made of jasper. We, we saw that la- uh, two weeks ago, okay? And maybe you've never seen jasper. I don't know if I've ever seen jasper. But jasper walls, clear jasper walls, obviously be this really beautiful and wealthy thing, right? So these walls are made of jasper. The gates are 12, there's 12 of them, and they're all massive pearls, right? The streets are pure gold. These people are surrounded by wealth and beauty and and incredible things that have been created to, to live in this place. But the inhabitants of this place worship the creator and not the created. Do you notice that? Right? All the disorder that's at work in our world is finally set right. The wealth of this city, the pure water of life, the twelvefold fruit of the tree, the nation healing leaves, they all point to the one who made these things, and everybody understands that. And so, and rather than these things becoming idols in these people's lives, they worship God, the one who is truly worthy. Guys, this is a place of worship where our hearts and affections are set and centered on the one that we were made to worship. This is fundamentally why heaven will be heaven, because we will worship the one who's worthy of worship. And we will stop the silliness of worshiping things that he's created. But secondly, we see what? Not only will God's people serve Jesus, God's people will see Jesus. That's what you see. We are promised to see the face of God, that your faith will be sight, right? Do you realize how amazing that is? I mean, the language used here talks about being face-to-face with somebody, and we've spoken about this before, but this is a very intimate image. If I went face-to-face with you today, Warren, after this, you'd either think I'm mad at you or I'm going to make you really uncomfortable, right? Because being face-to-face with somebody is an intimate space, isn't it? I'm not even talking about during coronavirus, right? We don't do this. It's an intimate place for only people that we're close to. It's a place of nearness. It's a place of closeness. So seeing God's face, seeing God face to face is the best thing about this perfect world, right? But it hasn't always been this way. This wasn't always a positive thing. If you think back to the book of Exodus, when Moses uh, was meeting with God on the mountain, Moses said to God, please show me your glory. And God says, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see my face and live. Have you heard of that before? And then so this was the solution. I will put you in the rock. I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you can see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Moses is way better than I am. Moses couldn't see the face of God, but in this perfect world that's being promised to people who trust in Jesus, you will see God's face, and it won't be deadly. How will this be so? Right? Let's do this. Let's turn with me just to your left in your Bibles a little bit to Revelation chapter 6, because we see this problem spelled out in a really important way. Look in Revelation chapter 6, and beginning down in verse 15 of Revelation 6, You see this, the kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich, the powerful, everyone, slave and free, literally everybody, what are they doing? Hiding themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. What's kind of like Moses a little bit? What are they doing? They're calling to the mountains and the rocks, 
quote, fall on us. Why? Hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And here's the big question, who can stand? Hide us from the face. There's so much guilt. There's so much shame. Hide us from the face of God. So what's going to be our solution here? Why can we get to the end of time? We look at the perfect world and we see that this is somehow a good thing. We'll look in the next chapter. Just look over in verse 9. What does John see? It says, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And what are they doing? Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. Who can stand? These people can stand. Why are they standing? Well, they're clothed in white robes. How are their robes white? Which is communicating this perfection, this innocence. Look right down in verse 15. What does it say? Or 14. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The only way you could stand, the only way that you would not say, hide your face from me, God, is if you've been forgiven, is if you've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Right, the vision of God that will be experienced someday that was withheld from Moses, that people beg to be withheld from them because of their shame and their guilt, but is promised to you is only if you've been forgiven. As we will see God face to face, like you see me right now. Like you could see my face, I can see your face. Your faith will be sight. That's the great promise. That's the great promise. Thirdly, we also see God's people will have a, a secure name. We see that in verse 4. Right? What's this thing about the name on the foreheads, right? Well, you know in the Bible who had God's name on their forehead. Right? Well, it was only the high priest who had that name on their forehead, written on their forehead, and he wore that name on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It was the one day, once a year, where they entered into the Holy of Holies through the blood sacrifice for sin that was made. Only they were allowed to go in there, into this intimate place. That name was giving them access to the very unhindered presence of God. Right? So do you know what this is saying? That in this new city, we are all high priests. We, we all have and know the very presence of God, the glory of God, and we will see Him as He is. We will have the very thing that used to be fatal on contact. And it's because we have this new name that gives us this access. Uh, we just got a kitten, and my life is very different, you guys. Um, it's our first pet, and I apologize for saying this to some of you, but I do not like cats, okay? But I love my kids, and I love my wife, and so we have a cat. But um, uh, you want to know the first thing we did when we got her. What, did we, what do you think we did? What's her name going to be? Right? We had to name her. Right? So her name is, is Rosie. Right, so let me ask you a very normal question. Why is that her name? Why is that her name? Well, because we gave her that name. Right? We, we named her that. Now, if you came over to my house today and you walked over and you said, Oh, hey, do you think this is Rosie? I'm sorry, her name is Kathleen, okay? Um, I'm just going to say to you, I'm really sorry. It's just not, right? You can believe that that's her name, but her name is not Kathleen. It is Rosie. 
And the reason is that my kids have spoken, right? She belongs to us. And because she belongs to us and we've named her, she has access to our house, right? No little cat can just show up on our porch and say they want to be in our house, right? I can only handle one. But even then, right, even if I can handle more, right, it's not our cat. This cat belongs to us. It has full range and access to our family. This is the same sort of idea here, but on a much, much greater, grander scale. You have the name of God on your forehead. And what that means is God has given you a new name, and it is a secure name, and it's giving you full access to His presence for all eternity. This is nothing you could not have given to yourself, but it's something that God has given to you. And so this means that no matter what happens in your life, no matter who walks up to you and says, you know what, your name is this, you know what, this is who you are. You are a failure. You are a nobody. Right? You don't belong. You could say, oh, I'm sorry, that's not my name. That's not my name anymore. I, I have one who's spoken a better name over me than any name that I could find in this earth, and that gave, gives me access to a place that I could never belong, but now I do. And it's this perfect world. R.C. Sproul says that when God writes his name on us, he doesn't do it with an eraser handy. He does it for all eternity. And the last thing we see is that God's people, they're not only going to see his face, they're not only going to worship him, they're not only going to have a new secure name that gives them access to God's presence, but they will reign with Jesus forever. And let those other things inform how you understand this. We will reign forever and ever. God's servants will reign as they worship and live under the banner of this new name. Right, the servants will reign as they worship and reflect God's character. We might wonder what this means. I mean, the word reign, that sounds kind of smug in some ways for us. But imagine if you're hearing this for the very first time. You're the people receiving the book of Revelation. You're a persecuted people. You're marginalized. You're not winning in life. And you're being told one day you will reign forever and ever. This is a statement of victory. And it's balm to the soul for a persecuted people. And this is only possible because of the one who sits on the throne for you. So is this the way that you think about a perfect world, you guys? If you found out that God and the Lamb weren't going to be there in heaven, but the street would be gold, the gates would be pearl, the walls would be jasper, the water would be uh, living, the leaves would be for healing, and all your loved ones would be there but the lamb wouldn't be there. Would that be a perfect world? A place where you'd be hoping to live forever in? I hope you would see that that heaven without Jesus would merely be a gold-plated hell. Because this is what makes heaven heaven. It's God who is heaven. me ask you here in closing, just what is it that you walked in here this morning with wanting in life? What is it that you want in life? What is that perfect world? Maybe you could do a fill in the blank with me, maybe, I don't know, but you could maybe say, life would be perfect if blank. My life would be perfect if blank. It'd be better if fill in the blank. It'd be fixed if fill in the blank. As if God was at the center of the throne of my life, if that's what I'm throwing into that blank, 
and if I was serving and worshiping Him and getting my significance from Him, that, that's what this is saying to you and me. Life would be perfect if God was on the throne, if God was at the center of my life, if my heart was fully worshiping Him, serving Him, getting my significance from Him. That's what makes this world this world. So what do I do now? What do I do now? Will you cultivate your heart for this place? How do you cultivate your heart for this world? Will you cultivate your heart for the one who's at the center of it all? Right? You look at all the things in this place, the tree of life, the river of life, the no curse, the no night, the name of God, and do you know how all that happened? Why do you have the tree? Because Jesus climbed the cross, the tree of death. And because Jesus climbed the tree of death, you can have the tree of life. How can you enjoy the river of water of life? Because Jesus cried out on the cross, I thirst. He received the cosmic thirst so that you could be satisfied. Why is there no curse in the city? Because Jesus became the curse for us. Why will we experience no night? Because at midday, when Jesus was being crucified, down came utter darkness over him. Why will we experience this new name? Because Jesus is the final sacrifice. He was not only the great high priest, he was the sacrifice that we needed to enter into the presence of God. What does all this mean? It means he did everything for us. He took the curse. He climbed the tree. He experienced the thirst for us. So how can you know that you belong in this new place, in this perfect world, if you believe that Jesus has done all this for you? It's all grace. That's why I love how when someone said to Thomas Hooker, who was a really famous, faithful Christian, they said to Thomas, at his death, you're going to receive the reward for your labor. And Thomas said, brother, I'm going to receive mercy. I'm going to receive mercy. Jesus did it all for me. And knowing what he knows, that'll cultivate your heart for this world, you guys. Once Jesus is who you're hoping for, only then will he be who you will live for. This perfect world, it's not a hopelessly impractical idea that only the depressed come up with, not only the cynical come up with. It's a promised hope to those whose hearts can't wait to see Jesus face to face. Is that you? Let's all stand together as we go into a time of response here, a time of singing, responding to God's word. Lord, this morning, I do pray that you would cause our hearts to long, not only for a perfect world, but long for you. Or that we would long for you, you to be the center of our lives, for you, God, to rule and reign in our lives, and for us to long for your kingdom to come and your will be done on earth here as it is in heaven. Lord, would you come and, and, and put us right with you today? Would we once again trust and savor uh, the sweet grace of Jesus that we experience as we come and remember what he went through on the cross for us. Lord, I pray that our hearts would soar with great affection for you, that we would serve you, Lord, that we'd long to see you, God, that we'd worship you. We'd get our significance from you. Lord, that we would anticipate that great day when, when we no longer are marginalized people, Lord, in this world, in history, but we are yours and we experience the victory that you've one for us. 
God, help us to trust in you through the ups and downs. God, and through every, everything that comes our way, God, would you cause us to do that? For your glory's sake, in Christ's name we pray.